Good evening, and welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhary. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubell, the show's producer. Tonight's episode, we continue our story behind the story episodes, where Rabia sits down with true crime expert Patrick Hines. Please enjoy. Hi, Nighty Night listeners, and welcome back to the Story Behind the Story series. This week, I am so excited to have on a guest that anybody who knows anything about the true crime world is already familiar with, the one and only co-creator and host of the hit show, True Crime Obsessed, Patrick Hines. Hi! Patrick, welcome! Hi, oh my Patrick! God. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to see you. I feel like we only get to see each other when we're like interviewing each other for each other's podcasts. We should do it like once a month just so we I can know. see each other. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Our listeners are not getting to see the visual aspect of this, but we're getting to look at each other's beautiful illuminated faces on Zoom. Yes. Oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, sorry, you. It's good to see your face. Well, you before too. we get started, I want, I just want you to let me gush over everything you've done <laughs> and who you are for a few minutes for our listeners, because truly it's phenomenal. I mean, oh, it's, thank you are you. just like this shooting star. It's amazing what you've accomplished, honestly. All right. Well, thank so you. I want to tell you guys. Our listeners all about Patrick. He is a veteran podcaster because he started his career in the industry as a creator of several esteemed Broadway podcasts, including Theater People and Broadway Backstory. And Patrick, just so I can kind of put a pin in the timeline, was this before or after the big serial podcast boom? Uh, way before. So way uh, before. Maybe not way like a year, a couple years before. <clears throat> oh, that's that's way before. I mean, like yeah. that's yeah. before anybody knew podcasts were a thing, but you were already on the game. Yeah, I mean, and, and I was making those podcasts for a couple of years. Serial came out while I was making them. And mm-hmm. it was so amazing for me as somebody who, like, loves, lives, and breathes podcasts to see the world waking up to podcasting through Serial was a beautiful thing. So in 2017, you then moved your podcasting interest into this whole other genre, launching True Crime Obsessed with Jillian Pensavale. Was that because you'd always been a true crime fan or just Serial somehow, like, shifted your whole... You know, Serial you know, made me realize that you could maybe make a living making a podcast. And I was always a, a true crime fan. I was obsessed with our mutual friend, Rebecca Lavoy and Crime Writers On. I loved what they were doing. I wanted to do some sort of like talky podcast commenting on other things that exist in the true crime world. And that's kind of how Jillian and I landed on True Crime Obsessed. And Jillian Pensavalli, ladies and gentlemen, what a force of nature. Oh, God, she's amazing. I was recently yeah. on her new show, Let the Women yes. Do the Work. Amazing, the what she's doing, too. Well, TCO was, I think, what, instant hit? I think we can all agree, instant hit. It was hit. pretty fast. It, 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 it really is mind-blowing to look back and realize that we went, like, Jillian and I both went from having five jobs and, like, trying to make ends meet to, like, you know, within, you know, eight or nine months, like, quitting our jobs and being able to do True Crime Obsessed full-time, which is, like, still, like, one of the great honors of my life that our listeners care so much and are there and want to hear us every week. For those who might not be familiar, which is probably like three of you with <laughs> True Crime Obsessed, <laughs> just to tell you a little bit about the show, it's a true crime comedy podcast. Now, I know that might sound a little bit like a little disconcerting, and it did to me too when I was like, I heard about it, and I'm like, true crime. Now, this is like right after Serial happened, I think, and then I was like, I don't know if I can listen to something that marries true crime and comedy. It's just too close. It's too painful. And then I listened to it. And I just, like, I couldn't stop laughing. I 
laughed well, till I wet you myself. you are one of the reasons why we were able to become successful. We covered cereal Lies. On... Lies. No, it's true. It's really true. <laughs> you know, your stamp of approval meant everything, and you really understood what we were doing. You listened to our coverage of cereal, and you tweeted about it. You included it in, like, one of like your top five favorite coverages of Adnan's case. And, you know, I think, like, we were so grateful that you gave it a chance and that you you know, we're able to hear that, like, obviously we never laugh about the crime, we never laugh about the victims. It's always finding the humor and the absurdity of, like, why did it take so long to convict this guy? Or why did it take so long? Like, why were the cops so awful? Why was that, you know, prosecutor the worst? Why didn't that lady run a comb through her hair when they, she knew the documentary crew was coming over, you know? <laughs> right. And we always say, like, it, we, we use humor to sort of give people a different way of learning about these stories. So it's a little yeah. bit of a lighter, sometimes it's easier for people to process but you, the story. But you're also way. saying the things out loud that some of us like think about when we're watching true crime documentaries and we're yeah. like, what the heck is happening yeah, here? Yeah, Now, uh, we could just have fun just chatting like this forever, but we're actually going to talk about today the story behind the episode that we had titled Schrodinger's Beast. And this was a story that was written by a good friend of mine, Sarah Kalin, who is a homicide investigator, former law enforcement officer, and because she lives in the world of serial killers and sexual predators. She wrote this story for us, terrified me, and I was further terrified to know that it was based on an actual serial killing duo. Ugh. These two men, Stephen Gordon and Frank Cano. Have you ever heard of them? No. And, you know, I was reading through the story and I was thinking this morning, my waking thought this morning was, every day we all wake up and we are presented with the option to become serial killers or not. <laughs> and to me, it doesn't seem like that hard of a decision. For these guys, it seemed to be a little bit more of a difficult decision. Well, you know what's crazy is like the string of murders they committed happened well in our adult lifetimes. We're like mm -hmm. talking about like nine years ago. This is not like yeah. from the 1975 when I was like, you know, a baby or you weren't even born yet, whatever. This yeah. is like, and I'm like, why didn't I hear about this at the time it happened? It, because uh, there's so many, there's so much tragedy in the world, Robbie. That, that could be part of it. I'm thinking, okay, so, the, so we're talking about 2000, 13. Like, what was going on in 2013 that I've been so distracted? But I will say this. I do think the nature of the victims makes a big made a big difference in yep. this um, story. And we're going to talk about it in a second. But another aspect of this that's crazy to me is that I don't know if I've ever heard another story in which you've got two serial killers working together. I know. That's a really good question. And no, no nothing that I... I mean, my God, I've yeah. covered 300-plus true crime documentaries and yeah. never have I heard such a thing. Yeah. So it is a highly unusual and also terrifying case. But right off the bat, I also like to like kind of just give folks our sources for the stories so yeah. you know that, you know, give credit where credit is due. Yeah. So we have a lot of references here. I'm just going to put them up front and you guys can you know do your Googling and find them. We sourced today's episode from the LA Times, from the Visalia Times Delta, the Desert Sun, Wikipedia, because we love Wikipedia, <laughs> Patch.com, CBS News, the Ventura County Star, Associated Press, Sacramento Bee, the Orange County Register, and the Californian. There was lots and lots of coverage in California because that's where the murders took place and that's where the trial took place of the killers. But um, outside of that, I don't know. I just couldn't find a whole lot. So California is like the stomping ground for serial killers, it feels like. I feel like so many serial killers are from California. Yeah. Now I'm curious. I want to like take a look and see like where the greatest like propensity of serial killers are. Yeah. But I wonder, I always, I don't know why my mind goes to Florida. Why could that be? Right. I don't know. <laughs> oh, poor Florida. You get a bum yeah. rap. But I think like, okay, so New York, Rhode Island. I'm mean, like that area also had its fair uh -huh. share. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, And 
look, there are like to date, I mean, hundreds of thousands of probably unsolved murders that are connected to all kinds of people that we will don't know and might not ever identify. Yeah. But all right, so let's get down to the victims in this case. Now, in the Schrodinger Beast story that we aired, I think it was late last year, the story was told from the perspective of the killer. Like, you know, how as a child, going from childhood to then like young adulthood, and then he becomes a killer, then he meets like the second person who joins him in the endeavor. What was it that awoken in this kid that made him like, you know, because basically Sarah Kalin, who wrote the story, the question she's always asked since she was a child, because she grew up in the area where Ted Bundy operated, was like, what makes them like this? And so she's kind of fascinated with that. We don't know for sure, obviously. Like, in this case, it was really hard finding a lot of information about their backgrounds other than just some, like, you know, unverified information that maybe they had really tough childhoods. I mean, so do lots of other people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Right. But so we're going to focus more so on um, the victims. All right. So... It all begins in early October of 2013. A young woman, 20 years old, by the name of Kiana Ray Jackson, who was from Las Vegas, but had just come to Santa Ana just briefly um, because she had a court hearing that was related to a misdemeanor prostitution charge. She'd just been there for a couple of days and she disappeared. All right. Her mother then reported to the police that shortly after getting to Santa Ana, Kiana disappeared. Now, you have done enough documentary coverage that you know that when a sex worker disappears, how seriously do the police actually take that? Not very seriously. Yeah. It's so sad and tragic. And it's, yeah, I mean, and so often it feels like they just don't, you get the sense that they feel like they got what they deserved, they had what what was coming to them, or these are people who are just valueless in their eyes. Yeah. And also just like kind of inherently unreliable. They could be anywhere. Like just yep. because you haven't heard from your daughter in four days, I mean, like, what do you expect given that lifestyle type of thing? Yep. Well, about three weeks later, in late October of 2013, Josephine Vargas, who was 34, also from Santa Ana, went missing. She had been at a birthday party. She said she's headed to the store. And then she just never showed up again. And and you know, she came from a very close family. She's the oldest of five. She was from Santa Ana, and her mother knew that she was a sex worker, and so she went, when she had heard from her daughter, like literally within the same day or day or two, went to look for her in the area that she knew that her daughter often worked. Couldn't find her, reported her to the police. Now again, in both of these cases, um, you have a close family member who is making reports immediately. Yeah. Then, I mean, again, two weeks later, like this is happening like in like so close in time and all in Santa Ana. 28-year-old Martha Anaya goes missing on November 12, 2013. So she had told her boyfriend that she needed him to pick up their daughter and she was going to go to work at night. She's a sex worker. She usually, it was always her habit to be home in time in the morning to be able to walk her daughter to the bus for school. She never missed it. She does not show up. So the boyfriend starts calling her and texting her. And then like a few days later was like left, actually left a, a text message on the phone saying, if you find this phone, call the police because this is this phone belongs to a missing person, which is a pretty smart move, I thought. Also, like so sad. When I read that, I was like, imagine composing that text and then sending it yeah. out into the universe and hoping that somebody sees it. And I'm I'm looking at these dates, right? Like... You know, it's late October 2013, late October 2013, November 12th, 2013. They're all being reported. And, the like, there's a serial killer on the loose. And I, I'm always like, why are we the only ones who are seeing this? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing is like, and and I have, I cannot tell you how many times I've listened to you talked with either Ellen uh, Marsh or with Jillian Pinsavalli, and you're all gobsmacked that like a 14 year old has disappeared and the police are like, well, 14 year olds run away. Yeah, exactly. They just, yeah. Over and over and over again. And if you're a day over 18, they're going to say that's a grown-up and they're allowed to disappear if they want to. They can disappear if they want to. I mean, that plus knowing the fact that, because at least we know this just from the media and what we've been to- what we've been told about how law enforcement operates in these cases, is that the first 48 hours is like the most crucial. Isn't that amazing? And that the fact that there's no national standard for for like dealing with, it's, it's literally like state to state, city to city, town to town, officer to officer. Yeah. There's no national standard for what you do, especially covering all those, you know, unobsessed with disappeared, covering all those missing persons cases. It's different in every episode. It's crazy, right? Like there, yeah. the, the fact that there's no like nationally recognized protocol yep. on how to approach this stuff. Something that would be so simple. That's actually brilliant, Patrick. Like I'm always I know. thinking of like legislative fixes, this kind of stuff. Something like that would make so much sense. I know. And then like, if we could also then like nationalize a database of missing people so that people in Nevada can access California, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like it just seems, it seems so simple to me. How has this not happened so far? I know. Yeah. Well, in Martha's case, her, you know, the boyfriend tells the mother, and then the mother goes looking for her, the family. In all three of these cases, they're missing. They don't know yet whether they've been murdered. But these are three local sex workers who've gone missing within the span of, like, like a month, month and a half. Every single one of them had family and friends that were looking for them. They put up flyers. They started Facebook groups. They are literally just walking the streets looking for them. Um, and, you know, they, like any family situation, were frustrated that— the they weren't really getting anything from the police it could be now there i haven't found any information about like what steps the police were taking at the time to like look into these cases see if they were connected and it could be that the police were but not they also were finding nothing mm-hmm. so months go by and it's not until march of the of the following year march 14th 2014 that a horrifying discovery is made at a recycling plant in anaheim which is very close to santa ana where these women disappeared and again, this is a recycling plant. It's not even like a garbage disposal. It's a recycling yeah. plant. Um, a woman's naked body is found on a conveyor belt. And she's got tattoos on her body. Um, and of course, you know, her, I mean, like she's intact so they can fingerprint her. And she's identified as 21-year-old Jeray Nicole Estep, who also was a sex worker. Um, she actually, I don't believe she her disappearance had been reported, but the police believe that, you know, she she had disappeared from some area of Anaheim, murdered, put into a dumpster, and then from that dumpster ended up here. And so her body was found in March. Given the condition of the body, I think they believe that it it was probably very recently at the time the body was discovered. Mm-hmm. And so now when this information comes forward, apparently um, the police in Santa Ana and Anaheim are like, well, maybe there's a connection here because we have all these, we have three other missing sex workers from the same, like within the same six months. And they finally make, start connecting the dots, which I have to say is a lot faster than I expected them to. Really? I mean, yeah, because I mean, I expected like this case to be handled completely. They have a miss. I can totally see. I've seen this in cases where a detective might be like, okay, this is a murdered woman. Uh, we have a body. Those are disappearances. Those could just yep. be tra- transient, you know, disappearances. They ran away. They're working in another location, not connected. But yep. the fact that they connected it, um, like as soon as they found the body was great because that means they realized that the three women who were missing were likely also murdered. It's amazing how they solved the case. Although, I mean, like, 
I kind of think anybody, like you and I, Patrick, could have solved this case in a scooby van. <laughs> I mean, like, right? You and I should open a private detective agency together. That'd be great. Would, only if we get a Scooby van. I mean, I... <laughs> yeah. One day we'll make that podcast. Maybe we'll yes. final podcast, like, when uh, we're like, 70 years old. Like, yes. Last hurrah. We just call it the Scooby van. The Scooby van. All right. So what happened was there was all this other trash, you know, on the conveyor that was near the body. So they're assuming that, you know, wherever she, wherever her body was, um, left. I hate using the word dumped so badly. I know. I, I, know. Know. I, I don't know how else to, to convey it, but yeah. wherever her body was left in, in the dumpster. I, can I just say, I think the thing about, here I am making an argument to reclaim the word dumped, but mm-hmm. I think though, like, because it sounds so disrespectful of the body, but I think what it really is is showing like what a piece of shit the person is who did the killing. You know this what I mean? This is 100% true. Yeah. yeah. I, I do, that's why, well, actually, I hate the word dump, but I also feel like you have to kind of use it to show how shitty that human being was. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's why that word is used. You know, like the body was dumped, discarded. Discarded, yeah. Well, this poor woman was discarded, not just like trash, but with trash, right? Exactly. Yeah. So they found like other, like, you know, trash that was like close to her body, like in proximity, and they connected it actually to... There was a caulking gun. Like, there was like, some construction material and maintenance material. They found a fingerprint on this gun, a caulking gun, excuse me, not a gun gun. And that led them to, like, this workshop, an auto body shop that was in Anaheim. And a dumpster where they think the body actually came from and been left. Mm-hmm. Now, Estep had been sexually assaulted before she had been strangled. And so what they did was they – this was kind of uh, smart. The investigators figured, okay, so – Whoever committed this murder probably has some history of, like, you know, sexual violence in the past. So they look for uh, registered sex offenders in the area and at their GPS tracking of their ankle monitors. And then they compared it to the victim's cell phone records. And they found a match. So this is really smart. I did not know that sex offenders wore these GPS trackers. I didn't know that. I don't think that's common everywhere. I mean, like, and and I, it might depend on, like, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of different factors. First of all, there's different state laws, but also, like, how far out from the offense has it been? Yep. Right? You know, but I guess, I mean, like, yeah, I should, I have no idea exactly what the rule is there. I can't imagine that in California, sex offenders have to wear monitors forever. Like, it's probably a certain amount of time. Um, It seems like a good idea, especially if it's, like, helping solve murders, you know? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But, well, I mean, so so they found a match. I mean, they what they found was that there was some GPS tracking records of a ankle monitor connected to a sex offender that overlapped with like where the, the victim's cell phone pinged, and that led them to 27-year-old Frank Cano. But that wasn't it. Then they also took DNA from her 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 body, and and it matched him. Um, so it's kind of like irrefutable evidence at this point. Yeah. And then they found that his tracking device on his ankle actually lined up with cell locations for the other three missing women that they've been looking for, which is... I mean, that's pretty amazing, right? Like, it is. And also, like, how stupid... We always say this on True Crime Obsessed, how stupid these murderers are. Like, you're yeah. wearing a GPS tracking... De- you're going to get caught. Right. Yeah. Although there there have been... I did read one report that said that the he had tried to disable, like, the cell phones of the women. So maybe they uh-huh. thought... Maybe they thought, like, that would do it. I mean, like, but, you know, once that information's captured, it's out there right. somewhere. I, okay. Turning off the phone won't do it. I know. <laughs> and it's like, may future murderers never hear this podcast and keep doing stupid things and getting caught. But yeah. what are you thinking? 
Well, it gets stupider because yeah. that's not it. <laughs> they they get to this guy, Cano, and they find all these text messages between him and not just an associate, but a friend of his named um, Stephen Gordon, who's about 20 years older than him, 45 years old, also a registered sex offender. And him and Cano, like, worked together, but also had kind of lived together. I mean, like, just hung out together for years. Um, and <clears throat> him and Cano... Ha- they have been texting each other throughout this entire period, basically, like, pretty clearly talking about the victims and, like, what they're going to do to the body. I mean, like, you know, there there were certain text messages, not all of them, obviously, were released to the public, but certain text messages that were released in which they're like, this particular victim is being difficult, like, what should I do? And Ken oh. responds, well, like, you know, we'll put her to sleep. I mean, like, obviously, euphemism for, like, killing her. Oh, my God. <clears throat> yeah, and then, like, an hour later, um, Gordon texts back and says, you know, Kitty's gone to sleep. And so it's like... Same, you know, same dates that they disappeared, you know, same location. Also, like, that. are, like that's not cryptic enough, you idiots. You know what I mean? Right. Like, we all know what we all know what you're saying, you stupid. Oh my goodness. Yeah, but I can't get past the GPS stuff, especially because. Yeah. Listen to their history, which is really crazy. So I want to talk a little bit about them. Let's start with Gordon, the older one. So he was from, you know, the area, grew up in California. He had a really kind of troubled adulthood already. Both of them had already served time in prison. Mm -hmm. So when he graduated from high school, Gordon was working in Disneyland. He met this woman named Lanaya Lewis, and she's important because in a little bit I'll tell you how. But he met her like in 88, but they got married like later. But in 92, his sister accused him of molesting her daughter. I'm sorry, I know the, the draft says nephew, but that's wrong. Yeah. His own sister. Uh, a, that's a big <clears throat> difference. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> that's, yeah. His own sister, Gordon's own sister, accuses him of molesting her daughter. He said no, but then he pled guilty, pleaded guilty, and he was charged with lewd and lavicious acts with a child under 14. He got sentenced to three years, but got out in 15 months. And, you know, he comes out, and I guess he comes out, and Lanai Lewis is like, i got to marry this guy. And so they get married. Can we just say, too, it's never enough time. These sex offenders who are brutalizing children, never, ever. Why is that not a life sentence? Yeah. We don't even know how old this, like, it's not been reported. And a lot of times that happens because they want to protect, like, you know, the identity of the Uh child and all that. But a child under 14. I mean, that's crazy. It's a baby. Yes. It's a baby, yeah. Yes, that's life Um, imprisonment. He did maintain his innocence, but, you know, I think we can, like, basically, uh, yeah, we, we can dismiss that. He he goes on to murder four people. <laughs> we can, we don't have to take him at his word. Yeah. Also, before he does that, though, he, at one point, he has a, he has a daughter with Lewis, and then, because he's crazy, and he's abusive and violent and manipulative, his wife leaves, takes her daughter, files for divorce, gets a retraining order, but he is a stalker. He desperately wants him back. At one point, he shows up this church where his ex and the daughter are, and he lures his daughter into his car with, like, promise of candy. And when the mother approaches, he threatens her with a stun gun. Then he Ugh. forces her to get in the car, abducts them, and takes them out of state to Nevada. And apparently, over the course of however long he held them, I think it was a couple of weeks, the the ex was able to kind of sweet-talk him into, like, calling her parents. She calls her parents, and the parents call the police, and they find him. And so he's convicted of kidnapping and sentenced to 10 years, and he's released in 2010. But he also doesn't serve the whole 10 years, I realize. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's like, this is a bad guy. Yeah. But he's not so bad that the auto body shop that he used to work at decides to give him a second shot. They're like, we're going to hire you again. I mean, look, I'm, of course, all about, like, hiring people out of prison, giving people giving people who are, like, <laughs> you know, like, like 
giving people second chances. That's a good yeah. thing. This guy is a bad guy. He should not be yeah. on the streets. Yeah. I mean, there are certain kinds of crimes, including like this kind of stuff, where like it really, unless there are some serious therapeutic, complete therapeutic intervention, like for years, it just escalates. Like yep. we have seen this over and over again. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyhow, he gets out of prison in 2010, starts working at this auto body shop, and that's where he meets Frank Cano. Now, Cano had already served three years in state prison. Well, he had gotten, he was sentenced three years, served 21 months because he also had been convicted of lewd and lavicious acts with a child under 14, which probably means he raped a child. Yes. Uh, yeah. And so he only served 21 months. I just can't believe these sentences. 15 months to 21 months. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. He gets out on parole in October 2009. They both end up at this auto body shop. And in 2010, they like start living together in like this RV that Gordon has. And then they do this crazy thing. So this makes me think, it makes me really wonder about the killing spree wearing the ankle monitor because in 2010, Frank kind of cuts off his ankle monitor. And the both of the- Can we yeah, talk they, about that for a second? Like, why is that not, like, shouldn't it be like a metal bracelet? How was this guy able to cut it off? I, that made me wonder, what are these made of? All I right. don't know. Like, how can you cut it off? But once you cut it off, right, and that thing is sitting in the same place for days uh -huh. and weeks, does that not ping the system? Like, something seems wrong. Well, they both took off for Alabama. I guess eventually, like, the parole officers, which, you know, they have to check in with parole and probation officers, and they don't, so they don't show up. Yep. They are found. They're both arrested, not, I mean, like, later that year, October 2010, they go to state prison, and they have some eva psych evals, and then they let them both go on the same exact day, apparently in March um, of 2011. So it wasn't really illegal for them to be associating. It's like you have two sex offenders. It's not illegal yeah. for them to be associating with each other, but it is kind of dangerous, right? Like parole agents should be kind of keeping an eye out for this kind of alliance. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's revisit that law. Let's go ahead and make it illegal for them to be cavorting <laughs> with each other. Right. Because, yeah, it's just like, I know like if somebody's uh, incarcerated, they cannot have people visiting them who have, who have like a record. Yeah. But but this is different. They're out, right? They've served their time. That's the thing. Like, I mean, like we're like, okay, you know, they've paid their due. Uh-huh. Anyhow, they, they do continue to, of course they get, they hook right back up. They're spending time together. And in 2012, they kind of do the same thing. They both take off their GPS tracking devices. Look, these devices are not secure. But also, like the first, like, like if if they do it once and they get away with it, and they do it twice, can we now put them in jail for for <laughs> for the rest of their lives? You know, they're breaking the, whatever parole conditions they have. Parole, you yeah. know, I mean, like there's no way around it. How are they not? I have seen people return to prison for breaking parole, like by getting into a fight. Yes. You know, like at a bar or something. Crazy. Yeah. Like, so how are they not? ending up in prison for 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 years right but anyhow right. probably because the original sentences were only like a couple of years anyways yeah so in 2012 they once again and they go on this trip they go to vegas on a on a greyhound bus they spend two weeks at circus circus which sounds kind of fun which is just uh, like <laughs> this is the most bizarre part of this whole story you know what i mean yeah. this is what it be, feels like it becomes a movie they they adopt the most like ridiculous names for each other right they become dexter mccoy and joseph madrid Je dexter mccoy is pretty good i like that. it's a I great mean, name but like if you meet somebody in vegas named dexter mccoy can you chart can you check and see if he's a registered sex offender in a different state because that's not a real name it's not a real name patrick remember the time we went to vegas together i was just thinking about that in fact yeah. we just refused to actually engage with vegas we did we 
hated, we equally <laughs> hated Vegas the same amount. Whenever I tell the story about how I hated Vegas, people are always like, but didn't you go with Rabia? I'm like, that was the only good part. We just sat in the hotel. We just we like, sat did. in the hotel bar. <laughs> it was like, I refused was to go outside. Horrible. I know, it was so bad. Well, they get they they are found eventually, I guess, after their two week um two weeks of fun in Vegas, and but they're but they're given time served. They're arrested, I mean, given time served, so they don't go back to prison, basically. And I don't, then I just I don't get it. I just don't get it, Rabia. And then they're put on federal probation with the same officer. So one officer, one probation officer, is handling both of their cases. Okay. Now Gordon has a state parole as well. He's got a federal monitoring device. In he gets one in November 2013. This is so crazy. There's a nine-day gap between when he takes off his state monitoring device and he gets the federal one. Yeah. And this is around the same time that the third victim, Martha Anaya, disappears. Okay, so they had this whole history together, but we're gonna we're gonna fast forward to April 2014, which is about a month, less than a month than after um, the victim's body was found at the recycling plant. So you know the, the the cops got them pretty quickly. Yeah, they're arrested April 11th under the suspicion of raping and killing four women. So they've tied those other three disappearances to them. They both initially say, we're innocent, we had nothing to do with this. And then Gordon, the older one, just breaks down during a 13-hour interrogation and uh, and confesses to all kinds of stuff. I love that at first you're like, we're really good guys and you guys are being really mean to us. We are, yes. We're just, you know, convicted sex offenders and right. we keep taking off our monitors to do good things that nobody right. needs to worry about. <laughs> nobody needs no. to worry about this stuff. But, but here's the thing, though. They actually did not remove their monitors during the killing spree at all. Maybe <laughs> the police smartened up and made it harder to take off or something? Oh, they got, like, the upgrades. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe what that's is what happened. happening? So Gordon tells the police that their first victim was Kiana Ray Jackson, the, the first woman who was reported missing in October 2013, that they had taken her to a vacant lot in a car. They raped her. And the way he made it sound was like they hadn't initially planned on killing her, but that she had noticed they were both wearing ankle monitors. And I guess that would have been a way to identify them. Maybe she reported them, so they decided to kill her. But then after that, they began actually stalking sex workers with plans to kill them, probably realizing that, like you said, in society and with the police, low-value victims who might not be given a lot of priority. Mm -hmm. But these guys like did not wait months and months in between or like they just went on a spree like every two weeks they picked up another one picked up another victim and killed her another part of the confession that shocked the police because they had no idea was that gordon said that there was in fact a fifth so he was shown all these pictures and he uh -huh. he identified like the women that he knew he killed and those were those the the three who had disappeared in late 2013 but he's like there was a fifth one a fifth victim you didn't know about I also read that he was, like, putting... He's like, no, you have these victims, their pictures in the wrong order. Let me correct that for you. Yeah. Like, also, like, wanting credit for his work. This guy was a total narcissistic, crazy, uh -huh. ringmaster, clown-ass person. I mean, like, wait till we get to his trial. I mean, the things yeah. he did at trial was crazy. Well, he tells the police that he doesn't know the name, this fifth victim, but she's a black woman, and none of the other victims are black. But he describes her as being, like, toothpick thin and kind of, like, where he picked her up. But the police could not identify. They, they weren't sure. They put out calls to the public to say, if anybody matching this description has been, you know, missing, let us know. Nothing comes about. So 2014, Cano and Gordon are both indicted for felony counts of murder, rape, kidnapping, lying in wait. I mean, like, just goes on and on and on, right? Oh. 
<clears throat> they're both facing the death penalty, possibly, and they both plead not guilty. I mean, which is a bold move. Yeah. Because we've got DNA tying them to the one victim, but they also have, you know, the text messages, cell phone evidence, ankle monitor t- device tracking data that just links them up to every... And they have this confession, by the way. Right. So they decide, um, prosecutor decides to separate the trials, right? And Gordon's trial begins in November 2016. So look, two years have gone by, right? Cause yeah. Yeah, the, the, the arc of justice is slow as tar. <laughs> Gordon's crazy. He fires his public defender. He says he's representing himself. He also says the public defender made him plead not guilty. He did not want to plead not guilty. He has no opening statement. And it is a total circus. He's so erratic. He wants to be punished. He says he's guilty, but he also wants to win at trial. So get this, this guy who is not a lawyer by any stretch of the imagination is successful in getting his confession suppressed at trial. Isn't that crazy? Wow. That is, I mean, that is crazy. Right. Which is what anybody who has confessed falsely or truly tries to do at trial. They want to get the confession suppressed. It's like we should hire this guy to represent Brendan Dassey. I know. What he does is he says that I wasn't properly Mirandized. I asked for a lawyer. They didn't stop the interrogation. And they've got it on audio. Like, they've got it recorded. And, and so the judge has to reluctantly agree and say, well, he did ask for a lawyer. You didn't stop the interrogation. So we're going to suppress the confession. But it's not over. He then says, in the midst of the trial, that I have successfully suppressed that confession. However, I offer up a second confession. In the middle of the trial, I will give a second confession. Come on! (laughs) He's like, but you have to drop the rape charges. Like, he really doesn't want to be associated with the sexual violence charges. Yeah. Prosecutor says, fine. So, mid-trial, he goes out with the detective and he gives a second confession. Okay. Which is, he confesses to five murders, but not to the sexual violence. He says that was all Kano. Kano's crazy. He's depraved. I wasn't like that. Then, after that, in the middle, like, the trial resumes. It's still mid-trial, and he decides, I've changed my mind. I want the jury to hear the 13-hour recorded confession. So, he does do it. And the jury listens to it. I mean, it's oh just, crazy. Oh, my God. Wait, did the jury listen to all 13 hours? I have no idea. I don't know. 13 I mean, hours. You know, they probably did. I mean, these trials last for weeks and weeks. I mean, they probably did. The prosecutor would not object to it. I can't imagine, right? Yep. Like, the defendant wants it. Like, who's going to say no? 13 hours. Oh, my God. That's brutal. It is brutal. Yeah, yeah. But but what's interesting is this. He makes the argument over and over that, you know, the reason we were able to commit these murders, it's the fault of the system. It's the fault of the parole system. This parole officer, he puts his parole officer on the stand. I mean, he's not wrong. Look, they can, like they were able to commit these murders because they're bad, evil, depraved men, and they, they are the ones who did it. But, like, the system failed these women over yeah. and over and over again. 100%, yeah. Well, I mean, he puts his parole officer on the stand. And he actually, like, he actually kind of, ex- like, excoriates him on the stand because he says to him at one point, isn't it true that one time during a meeting I said something like, I'm so frustrated I want to kill somebody, and you didn't catch that? You didn't stop me? Yeah. I mean, crazy. Anyhow, at the end, like in his closing, he says to the jury, after putting them through the ringer and putting the families of victims who are in the audience, who are at the courthouse, you know, saying that my intentions were evil, I am evil, please convict me. I mean, this piece of shit. What a piece of shit. Yeah. Nobody had to go through any of that. No. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, they convict him. 
Um, of course. And uh, he's found guilty of four counts of murder, not five yet, because they don't even know who the fifth victim that he said he killed is yet. And um, he's sentenced to death. And he says there at, at the sentencing, he says, there's no defense for what I did, what I and Keno did. It's despicable and disgusting. So he shows remorse and he takes responsibility. And he's basically like, just kill me. I don't want to. Well, he's never appealed any of this. Like, you know, he's been on death row since. It's been five wow. and a half years. Yeah. In 2017, the police are finally able, so this is about really just months after he's convicted or sentenced in December 2016, they figure out who the fifth victim was. And it is 19-year-old Sable Pickett. I mean, just a baby, 19 years old. Yeah. So apparently she went missing on Valentine's Day, February 14th in 2014, which is, again, it kind of tracks same area, same kind of frequency of them, you know, attacking their victims. And the way they knew it was her was because that Gordon accurately described all of her tattoos. He knew the name of the street she grew up on. He was able to describe the car that she had gotten out of before he picked her up. And her physical description was on point. And her family, when they were given the description he gave, they're like, that's our girl. That's our daughter. Oh, it's so awful, Rabia. Yeah. But you know what is even worse is the fact that four of the victim's bodies have never been recovered. And he just won't tell the authorities where the bodies are? No, he actually said that every single time they did the same thing. They left the bodies in dumpsters. But, you know, there was an effort. So let me just name these women. Yeah. Hannah Jackson, Josephine Vargas, Martha Anaya, and Sable Pickett. Their bodies have never been found. He's confessed to murdering all of them. So there was an effort to go through, because, you know, these dumpsters are now then emptied at these huge dump sites. Yeah. And those dump sites get 7,000 tons of garbage a day. There are mountains and mountains and mountains. And so... It just so happened that at the recycling plant, like they were able to catch the first body at, on a conveyor belt. But if it yep. had gotten to the dump site, yep. they probably never found. So because of the cost, it would have cost like $12 million to excavate like one dump site. And it could have been, there could have been any, like there were like four possible places the bodies could have ended up. They were wow. like, we just can't do it. They tried, like they told um, operators who are working on the dump sites who, you know, have the, what are they called? The, what are the machines? The big heavy machinery. They're, they're moving stuff around uh-huh. that keep an eye out for this, but they just could not, they did not have the resources to excavate. So for those families of those young women, all of whom were so closely connected to their daughters and their sisters and their friends, um, for them, those are their burial grounds. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. That is, we gotta do better with these, with these, because if this is like a, a way that people know they can like hide bodies successfully, we need to be able to. We can put a man on the moon. We can figure out how to find a body in a dump. Well, what's crazy to me is that, as far as from what I've read, and uh, there's a lot of reporting on this, but there's also a lot of missing details. From what I've read, it's not like they ever put the bodies in trash bags and put it with the trash. They just like left them in dumpsters, but they were yep. surrounded by trash, covered in trash. They would remove the clothing so they couldn't be identified, you know. But how do you miss an entire human body? I know. As like, you know, it's it's kind of – and imagine, like, I, I don't know. It just makes me wonder about who else have we missed in dumpsters who could have been in bags or rolled up in carpets or well, whatever. But they, they talk about this with, with, you know, with homeless people as well. This happens because a lot of times, right. like, in the cold, people will climb into a dumpster for warmth and oh. then – yeah, it's, you know, I mean, there was an episode of Unsolved Mysteries that, like, one of the theories was that, like, the person climbed into a dumpster for warmth and was just not found. And there was an interview with a man who drove a garbage truck who was like, yeah, like, there are, it happens plenty of times that, like, you you know, you're driving the truck and you stick the things into the yeah. dumpster and you go to, and, like, somebody will pop out being like, whoa, 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 like, this is not uncommon. 
That is horrifying. Yeah. Because what if that person's just asleep and they could just get crushed anyways? Right. And that's what happens. Yeah. Oh it's my it's God. terrifying. I did not know that. That's terrifying. Yeah. Sorry to ruin your day. No, no, you're not. Listen, it, it's not getting any worse than after thinking about this case and talking yeah. about this. I mean, and I'm imagining, I mean, like, so I want to talk a little bit about, like, you know, the GPS issue because yeah. there have been inve- like reviews of their system for monitoring in California. Like, you know, how do you monitor people on parole? But the problem is like, even to this day, there like, there's no way for officers, parole officers to know just because just you're monitoring them. You don't know what they're doing at the time. Right. right? Like, right, you know what I mean? Right. Of course. And they don't have a real time system where they're showing people who are wearing the monitors who are like closely grouped together at any time. Right. Like they're, so other than the fact that like they, I think because these guys worked so quickly together and the body was discovered, they could have literally just gone on for months and months, maybe years doing this. I mean, like if that one body hadn't been found, basically. But uh, Yeah, and it just seems like they, like these were people who were like in trouble, out on parole, doing things, getting caught, and then not getting put back in prison. Like these are the exact kind of people that we need to have an eye on. And when they're like, when they're yeah. doing something bad, we need to pay attention. Like it, it just seems like it well, was like earlier. Like, when the women went missing immediately, like yeah. that should have been the first thing on the police's radar then if they had taken those reports seriously. And right? it also like, seems like the monitoring is only really useful after the fact because they were able to use the monitoring to 100%. say like, yeah, and which is valuable. You know what I mean? Like it is, it yeah. is valuable to be able to, to connect the dots even if it's later. But in um, real time, it doesn't seem very valuable because especially yeah. because like over and over, these guys are able to get rid of their devices and just take off. Which right? is bananas. But maybe, you know, I guess what we don't know is, is it an effective deterrent, right? So like, yeah. It wasn't for these guys, but is it for other people, you know? Maybe. Well, here's the thing. So Gordon has been on death row for five and a half years in California, but here's the final mystery in this case for me. We can't figure out what happened to Frank Cano. I and two of my researchers have spent the last 24 hours looking for any information about where this guy is. We cannot find any news about it. This is what it seems like. This is going to sound so crazy. It seems like he hasn't gone to trial yet. Like, and this is from 2017? Yeah. In 2016 is when the last trial happened, when Gordon's wow. trial happened. So because if he had been tried, it would have been reported. So we can't find any reports. I have done both California and federal inmate searches looking for Frank Cano. Cannot find him. I have tried every variation of the name spelling. I've looked for every Cano that might be him, but then either the age doesn't match up or something else. Like... Dude, what happened to Frank Cano? If anybody knows, let us know. <laughs> wow. Is it possible that he's dead? I look for obituaries. have no idea. I did not find an obituary that matches him in California. But, like, where we've landed on this, meaning me and my researchers, is that we think he just hasn't gone to trial yet, which is also insane. Where That's is Frank Cano? crazy. That's What is that? That's... Six five years? years? Five years, yeah. yeah. Yeah, five, six years. So we don't know where he is. If anybody knows, let us know. Um, Please. I would be, <laughs> I'd like to keep an eye on him. We yeah. want to know where he is. Uh, uh, that was a long, heavy hour. What a day. Oh, my yeah. goodness. This is uh, this is one of the most terrifying serial killer stories ever because it's, because they're working together. And I hope nobody else gets ideas from that. Yeah. All right. TCO, look, TCO is a, I mean, it's just such a phenomenal hit. I mean, it's been featured in New York Times, Vogue, Newsweek, Vulture. You guys, 
tour now i mean you're gonna be going internationally but your yeah. t- your live shows are amazing i have been to a number of them you've been um, in you've been in one we did a live I, show covering <laughs> the case of adnan sayed in the hbo doc based on your amazing book in yeah. dc and it was it was crazy listen i've never seen fans like yours i mean like just the most incredible loyal fans i mean i it's have true. never felt so loved as i did that night <laughs> but listen a big big landmark you guys are the first podcast to play live on Broadway. Incredible. Jillian and I, thank you. We're such like theater nerdy kids and you know, we never were going to get to Broadway another way. So we were like, look, we do live shows. Why don't we take it and do it on Broadway? We got this great Broadway director, uh, Bob Bartley, who came in and brought choreographer and dancing boys. And you know, we were able to like do this really special show on Broadway. And it was a, a, tr- a really a dream come true. I mean, you guys are pioneers here. I'm wondering oh. what's going to be the next one. It's incredible. It's incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much. I wish I could have been there that night. Me but too. I mean, like, look, TCO has gotten over 100 million downloads, which is also phenomenal. And I'm pretty sure I count for like a million of those because I'm a huge <laughs> fan. But you guys didn't stop there because two years ago, you launched the Obsessed Network with your husband, yeah. Steve Tipton. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So tell us about the network and all the shows in it. You know, it was like lockdown happened and we, Steve and I looked at each other. We're like, we're not going outside for two years. What are we going to do? And we just started like reached out to our really talented friends and we were kind of like we know how to make podcasts and I think you're really good and do you are you want to do you want to try this and so we started making new shows and you know we had a lot of success we you know we the first one was Crimes of the Centuries with Amber Hunt Love you know it. the Pulitzer Prize winning um journalist and host of the Accused podcast it was strange and unexplained with Daisy Egan, which gets to explore my nerdy, big footy aliens. <laughs> was the moon landing real kind of thing? You know, we made Murder and Alliance with Maggie Freeling and uh, Obsessed with Disappeared with Ellen Marsh and me. Uh, now it's Ellen and Joey. You know, we just kind of like took our creative energy uh, and put it into that. And, you know, we, we've had a really great couple of years. I mean, it's incredible. In the last two years, you have produced, what, four new shows or five new shows? Amazing. Seven new shows, yeah. Well, what, what? Seven I know. new shows? <laughs> yeah. You don't sleep. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I really, sleep. I do wake up at four in the morning and I get right to work. I'm so lucky that I, I love what I do. And, yeah. you know, I have the support of my husband, who's my my partner in work. And, uh, you know, it's it's been a really nice time. And this fall... Another big milestone. You're gonna be holding your first weekend long fan convention called yeah. Obsess Fest. Well, you're gonna be headlining, so I'm gonna- <laughs> <laughs> we're just you know we have this we have this really incredible dedicated fan community, and we thought like what if we could get everyone together in one place? And so we, we teamed up with an events company called Mischief Management. They do amazing events, and yes, yeah, September 30th through October 2nd in Columbus, Ohio, at the at the Grand Hyatt. We're doing a weekend-long fan convention. So it's going to be like, during the day, it'll be like panels with you and other amazing people from the true crime world. At night, we're doing live shows. And it's going to be a really amazing, fun weekend. And we're ending the whole weekend with this, like, epic drag brunch. <laughs> oh, my God. It's going to be well, I cannot wait. I have had it on my calendar from the moment you said. You're like, Rabia, will you come to? I'm like, yes. <laughs> you were the you first person we asked. You were the first person who said yes. You are like, you've been so supportive of me and all throughout my podcast journey. And I just love you so much. I love you so much. And I was going to say the one thing I didn't mention so far as I'm talking about your work and who you are and your bio is the fact that um, you are one, a, a very, very dear friend to me. Yes. Um, but I did not find that in your bio anywhere. So you have to explain yeah, yourself. Weird. I'm going to have to. <laughs> I was actually just thinking, I made this promise to you and I'm keeping it. We're getting one of those armored trucks and we're driving up to the prison where Adnan is and we're 
we're putting the chains <laughs> around the bars in the window, and we're going to pull the thing away, and that's how we're going to get them out. Look, let's just give it, like, another six months. We might not have to do that. We're getting <gasps> close. We're getting okay. close. We're getting All close. right. And then, right. and then you're going to tell us the bombshell, right? There's so many bombshells to come, yeah. <laughs> All right. So tell folks all about Obsessed, like where, how they can come to Obsessed Fest and then yeah. where they can find you online. Yeah, so if you want to come to Obsessed Fest, it's going to be a weekend of like 2,200 of other true crime people, just good people. It's going to be a great time. You can find all the information for Obsessed Fest and all of our network shows at obsessednetwork.com. And that's where you can find everything about us. And where, the, where can they find you? Personally? You can find me, uh, find me on Instagram. It's at Patrick Hines underscore. And my last name is H-I-N-D-S, not like the ketchup. <laughs> and if you fall down the stairs, make sure you record it and send yeah. it to Patrick because he loves watching videos. Just I, tag him. I just was I Robbie and I like like jumped into this Zoom as I was like on Instagram watching videos of people falling. It's my favorite thing. I'm a bad person. <laughs> they make me laugh too. It's okay. Tag Patrick, make him happy. He works so hard. He deserves it. He deserves oh, all the joy. Oh, thank you so much. I love you. Thank you for having me for this. I love you so much. Thank you so much for coming on and Anytime. making it a, a, a lighter lift for me to, to work through this horrifying crime. And our, our hearts and prayers are with the families of the victims. And, Always. you know, awful, awful human beings. Monsters, these guys. Yep. All right, guys, that's it for us this week. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with another story behind the story, Nighty Night episode. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you, Patrick. My pleasure. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. 